Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Toddcast Podcast. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and at ToddHancock.ca. What's happening? Good to see you, Todd. Right on, dude. Well, thank you, man. Thank you for taking some time here to join us. We have uh, the host of the MMA Power Hour. His name is Colin Crandall. How long have you been uh, hosting this show for? So I've been doing MMA Power Hour for about seven years. We did it as a video podcast for seven years. And uh, then for the for this year, mostly we've been doing it. Uh, I've been doing it myself as a uh, as a uh, Twitter Spaces audio podcast. But I am doing a, a new podcast that's a video podcast uh, every week now with uh, an MMA uh, journalist from London. And that's called MMA from London to L.A., and we're airing on the Hannibal TV, which has almost 400,000 subscribers. That's one of the bigger combat sports channels on YouTube in Canada and uh, and doing various other uh, interviews as well. I just did a real good interview uh, myself uh, without any label for any show on it. But it was just a Colin Crandall interview with uh, with uh, Factory X head coach uh, Mark Montoya. And we're going to keep throwing that stuff out there as well. So I'm still in action, still very focused and a lot of big stuff uh coming up in store for everybody here and uh but yeah but mma power hour we did as a video podcast for six years and uh and we've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of content on that show and also covering live uh events as i'm credentialed with the ufc bellator pfl and one championship and you have a a, a great online presence uh colin on social media um thank you what is your approach to that to promoting the show and uh, I guess your life and the fights and how do you, how do you approach that? Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I really appreciate it because you've got a great presence yourself and a great, a great following and, uh, and do great work. So it means a lot coming from you. Um, How I, well, you know, I, I've always been, excuse me, I've always had a real passion for MMA and combat sports and I've trained in all of it. Jiu-jitsu with a little bit of wrestling uh, and uh, and uh, Muay Thai and uh, traditional karate and a little bit of boxing. And, um, and so just being really knowledgeable about it made it a passion. I've been following the UFC uh, uh, and MMA for two years before the first UFC. I had a copy of the press packet for UFC 1 prior to the event. Oh, and no. at that's cool. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It was really cool. I had friends that were training with the Gracies in their garage in Torrance. And uh I was um I was uh 
I had already watched the two Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in action VHS tapes uh, prior to the UFC. So I had a good idea what was coming. I had learned a few techniques and uh, wish I would have stayed with it from back then. I would have definitely been a black belt instead of just a purple working on brown. And I may not get that brown because my body's getting old. But nevertheless, my <laughs> mind knows the Jiu-Jitsu. My body has yet to prove that I'm high level, but that's okay. Intermediate, if that's where it ends, I'll take it. But I love uh, I love the sport so much, and uh, I just you know wanted to to put myself out there. And I believe in the fact that I care about the fighters, I respect them a lot, and I also pride myself on doing really good interviews, so that I can really you know make the people who are watching the fans uh, more familiar with the people that they're cheering for, and uh, can help to form even more of a connection uh, with them and and bring out the the human side of these tremendous warriors and there really is you know such a unique uh, aspect to all these men and women uh that are they're more than just fighters doing something that takes a lot of courage they all have unique personalities and and you know my goal is to do really good interviews that, that help to you know help to let people get to know them a little bit better mm-hmm. uh and and what did you think like when it, initially when it did launch and it was like you know, there was truly no weight classes. I think that the only rules were like no eye gouging and you, you couldn't punch somebody in the balls. But beyond that, like it was truly uh, a different sport than what it is today. Do you think that it could have lived the way that it was initially present day? Absolutely. That's a good question. And you're pretty close to exactly what the case was. There was uh, there was groin shots were allowed, actually. You oh, wow. could punch and kick someone in the groin. Uh, what there you couldn't do is you. There's no eye gouging, and there was no fish hooking. Where if you're oh, wrestling with someone, yeah, yeah exactly, you can't yeah. do that. But you could stomp on somebody's head. Yeah, you could stomp on someone's head. There were soccer kicks, knees to the ground. Yeah. You could do twelve to six elbows in the back of someone's head. It was pretty dangerous. Uh, hair pulling was legal. The one thing that no one did as a kind of a gentleman's thing, no one was going to be biting anyone. Uh, although I think in a couple cases some guys did, but uh, yeah, so it was uh, nearly anything goes. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think that would have lasted for a couple reasons because there was a big protest against it. The late Senator John McCain kind of made it a, a a project of his to convince any pay-per-view uh, outlets to not carry the UFC. And so a lot of people don't know this, but for the first four years of the sport, four or five years from 93 to 97 or 98, everyone could get it on pay-per-view. And then for about three years, the only people that could see the events were uh, uh, DirecTV and Dish, at least in the United States. And uh, I, I used to go over to a, to a, an ex-girlfriend's place and treat her to a dinner and, and watch the, you know, the fights on her DirecTV or Dish or whatever it was. And uh, yeah. never forget, I remember I came back one night at early, like, you know, late in that night, early in the morning, and there was like a tor- torrential rain. And I was on the, I went under a bridge and it seemed like a, a thousand gallons of water came down on my car and I couldn't see anything. And I was like, oh man, I gotta, they gotta fix something. So I'm not driving out here for the fights and almost getting <laughs> killed on the way back, you know, but, uh, you know, so because of, uh, of McCain and other people protesting it and calling it barbaric and human cockfighting, yeah. uh, no athletic commissions were willing to, to, uh, to let the UFC go there, especially the big ones in Vegas and, and in, uh, Atlantic city. And, uh, 
I mean, it, it could have kept going on if the guys who ran it were independently wealthy and didn't mind not making any money or losing money. But that, hardly anyone wants to do that, especially guys that are wealthy. You know, you couldn't see Elon Musk saying, let me just do some stuff for shits and giggles where I'm bleeding out money. You just okay. don't do it. Yes. Yeah. So it wouldn't have gone on, I think, because of the backlash. And also, it was a very different sport. And I think it had kind of a different mindset. Like, I'm not saying some of our guys today wouldn't have participated because I think a lot would, but some wouldn't. I think, you know, the fact that, and headbutting was legal too, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, with headbutting, with the fact that you could punch someone in the groin and you could pull hair and you could stomp on them in the ground and soccer kick, I think, uh, a bunch of guys probably would not have agreed to get into that. And I think that probably most women would not have agreed to get into that. So it would have been really different. It would have been just uh, the bravest of the brave, essentially, or craziest of the crazy or both. Well, it almost uh, seems like the, uh, the bare knuckle uh, boxing now is, is that, you know, like the people that uh, uh, like, a, like a Perry, you know, like this guy lives and breathes for that sort of shit, you know? Yeah. Like Perry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, similar in concept, but in a way, uh, not nearly as, 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 uh, like, as, uh, yeah, it wouldn't, you know, because with the bare knuckles, there is more contact with obviously with the fists, there is more, there are more cuts, superficial cuts. No, usually there are more hands being broken. Uh, but essentially the gloves originally were implemented because I'm also a boxing historian from way back. The oh. gloves were into implemented in 1892. Hence the Marcus of uh, Queen bear or Marquis of Queenberry Marquis Marquis of Queenberry rules uh, or Marcus of Queenberry rule. Queensberry rules were, were the gloved era starting in 1892 with John L. Sullivan being the first uh, champion. And the gloves were really put on to protect your hands because people were breaking their hands too often. And even though the superficial cuts are worse when you have bare knuckles overall, it's otherwise it's really even safer because your hands take less damage and when you hit someone with a boxing glove, it kind of spreads around and distributes the damage to a larger area. Whereas the fist is just hitting. Sorry about that. That mm-hmm. little sound effect is just hitting uh, the one area. Uh, whereas in MMA, doing techniques like hair pulling, eye, uh, not, eye gouging was never in there. But original rules, head butting, hair pulling, sure. uh, stomping on the ground. Uh, twelve to six elbows coming down on someone would be uh would be extremely dangerous, and it's amazing that nobody in any pr- major promotion was uh was was killed. Uh, I know there were some people that were hurt somewhat badly, especially when they had uh more open weight classes where you had guys who were two hundred and fifty pounds going against guys one hundred and fifty pounds, and mm-hmm. that was also very dangerous. So yeah, it would you know it was more of a spectacle than. I remember Bruce Beck, the commentator, would say this is uh, would do a disclaimer when the broadcast started and say this is not an exhibition. You know, this is real brutal combat. So if you're not wanting to see something like that, we advise you turn the channel. You know, and so definitely different now, but it's still it's still as close to real fighting as it gets. Sorry for the monologue. No, not at all. Not at all. This is the whole the, the reason, Colin. And, and you say you have some uh, uh, MMA experience and some fight experience. When was the last time you had a, a real fight? 
like so i like. just just to qualify that because i never like to lie or, or have any misunderstanding about my background i trained in all the different arts and i had competitions in karate and in brazilian jiu-jitsu on a very low level and only a a handful of times mm -hmm. MMA fighting per se is not anything I've ever done on an amateur or pro level. So I want to make that okay. clear. I, I okay. would not, I don't think that anyone should, you know, allow any misunderstandings on that. Some people flat out lie about that, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I think lying is bad and misunderstanding, you know, so no, never had a matchup where I put that all together. A couple of sparring sessions, a little bit goofing around, but a lot of the time that, that I was training, like I was young, in the early 90s very young and and i just was i only weighed about 155 or 160 pounds in those early days and by the time they started having weight classes i was already you know pretty close if not in my 30s and had a couple of injuries from bodybuilding and karate already and i just kind of realized that you know i would have loved to have actually jumped into it but didn't didn't have the belief in myself as far as uh starting so late and my wrestling was was very 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 limited and uh and i just you know i just had enough respect to realize that it would have been too late to start then with just my background of some stand-up uh karate and then as I progressed into my 30s is when I really started to spend more time on my jiu-jitsu and train Muay Thai and a little bit of wrestling in jiu-jitsu class. So at that point, you could say my skills were up to speed when I was about 40. And so that absolutely wouldn't have been the time. Uh, I probably would have been better off starting at 30 with my skills. I would have got my ass kicked either way. Let's just say that, you know. Uh but, uh, but so, yeah, I, I just, you know, I've done all all, but not put it all together and competed. I want to make that clear, but knowledge and appreciation and respect for the grind and having done different aspects of the grind at different times that I've done. Yeah. Uh, talk about the, the goats of the sport, uh, both men and women. Yeah. So, so many, there are several greatest of all time goat. It's funny years ago, I'm a generation X guy. And years ago, the goat was a negative thing. You were either the hero or the goat. Right. And the, the goat was not the hero. Uh, now, G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. You've even got the boxer from my home state of Michigan, my original home state, Clarissa Shields, being the, quote, greatest women's, uh, woman uh, of all time. Right. You know, uh, the greatest fighters of all time in our sport, you can go way back to Matt Hughes, although his striking was very limited, but for the skill set and the time, he was one of the greats back then. Uh, Randy Couture, uh, even a little bit more advanced uh, than him. Uh, then you had amazing, amazing greats like Dan Henderson, Anderson Silva, George St. Pierre, BJ Penn, uh, you know, all the way to John Jones, Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, uh, Henry Cejudo, uh, women like uh, Amanda Nunes, Ronda Rousey for the time that she was uh, on top of the game. Um, and uh, and some people that are on the come up. Alexander Volkanovsky was making a great argument for himself. And even though he did lose, it was on very short notice, nine days notice or 10, going up one weight class to fight Islam Makachev. So I think he's still in the argument uh, other than having taken that short notice fight. Islam himself, Makachev, is in that argument as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
other than that, I think uh, I think there's a bunch of people trying. But those names, I think about a dozen names that I rattled off would be up there. Uh, Fedor, I, I even throw Fedor and Melanianko in there, or Fyodor, as they pronounce it. He never fought in the UFC, and some people look back on him unkindly, saying these assortments of cans that he fought or this or that. But it, it wasn't really that. For that time period, he fought some good guys. He was a somewhat smaller heavyweight at six foot even and usually about 235. Uh, or if he was 240, it was a little fleshy 240. And uh, I still respect him because his skill set was really, really good. It's just unfortunate that he got to be most well-known as he got closer to 40 and was competing against really, truly good guys in this country past his prime. But mm-hmm. I like to put him up in there as well. And 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 in that regard, also, uh, Vanderlei Silva in those early days of pride was absolutely amazing too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what is it about the fighters uh, in Dagestan right now? They're taking over the UFC. It's insane. Yeah, absolutely. The guys from Dagestan or or nearby areas, uh, Chechnya, Kazakhstan, these guys are killing it. Absolutely. You know, I think it's that that Eastern Bloc, as they used to call it, that Eastern Bloc combat sambo or sambo, whichever you prefer. Mm-hmm is a big part of it because we don't have a program like that here and we probably never will for kids because what it is is it's essentially like MMA. I think there's some limit on the striking on the feet, but I believe uh, there is striking allowed on the ground. So the closest thing we have kind of to it now is this new thing called like combat jujitsu where you can actually do some sort of striking on the ground. But the system that these guys grow up in does allow from a very young age wrestling with some striking. And I think it would be, it would be, it's going to be tough to get that sanctioned or approved anywhere for grammar school, elementary, junior high school kids. Uh, Mm. It's not the safest thing, but I think uh, over there, it was like, you know, for survival of fittest and, uh, and I like I wouldn't be surprised if these guys. I think that apparently they would just go out there in the snow. I think Habib said sometimes they would just take the six, seven year old kids and throw them out in the snow and say, "Go and, and do the sambo," and you know, and whoever wins is is you know is will be respected and will be uh, the government will probably help promote your drive to be a fighter. And whoever loses, you know, you're you're done, and and you know, go home and ask your mom to make you a cup of hot cocoa or whatever, and she'll be glad to do it. But you're not going to be a fighter. So uh, these guys really is kind of like a kind of a baptism by fire. They're out there realizing that uh, this is their way out of literally abject poverty, uh, living out in some mountain area where there's not even running food or running water or not much food. I think uh, uh, the guy from Chechnya, uh, Hamza Chemayev, said he was pretty much living in a six-foot-by-six-foot room with very little food to eat back uh, when he was young. Yeah, and so you have a tremendous motivation to get to be really good at what you're doing, and these guys are great. Uh, They train in different places, but a lot of these guys are training uh, under the tutelage of... uh, of, uh, uh, 
American Kickboxing Association, a.k.a. under the tutelage of head coach Javier Mendez, who I've interviewed several times. And now Habib Nurmagomedov is, I think, his his number one assistant coach. And I think they're calling it like Team Eagle as well as a.k.a. And a lot of these guys are going up there against each other. And you know the old saying, iron sharpens iron. And you just got all these guys who came from that just absolutely rugged, very, very, very difficult uh, pain-filled uh, system of combat sambo, and they all, only the best survived. So you got these guys who a lot of them have known each other for years or knew each other's brothers or cousins, and it's all the guys that were winning all their fights. It's all the best guys from over there yeah. that are in MMA here, right? So, And they're training with each other. You know, and, and and what you get from that is their training sessions are harder than a lot of their fights because they have guys, easy, right? Like, yeah, what? they have guys that are just as good as them. Here we yeah. are screaming about how good this and that, that Dagestani is, and on the gym, if he let you know, he was losing most days in his training sessions, and then but the guy he's training with is five times better than the guys he's fighting in the in the in the octagon. So. You yeah. know, that's a big advantage for those guys. But we do have Americans that are really coming up. Our American freestyle uh, collegiate wrestlers and Greco guys are, are are definitely in the mix and are giving those guys a hard time, as you saw with uh, Kamaru Usman, with just 10 days notice going up against the aforementioned Hamzat Chimaev. So, But those right. guys are killing it. They're definitely killing it. They are, yeah. Uh, we're talking with MMA historian uh, Colin Crandall. I'll call you that, right? Yep, I'll take it. Outside of fighting, let's get outside of fighting for a little bit and podcasting and, and kind of what you're known for. Uh, I guess it shows, not podcasting. But uh, I'm curious what you what you watch outside of fighting and, and MMA and stuff. Like, what are you binge watching when you find the time? That's a good question. And also, sorry for the sniffling. It's been a murderous allergy season here for oh, me. Right. And, and, it, and at night, it gets worse. So I apologize for that. I wish I would have scheduled. But anyway, I will... I will do my best, and I appreciate. Uh, I appreciate. I don't want anyone to think I've got cocaine nose or anything here because yeah, no, okay. not not a drug guy. Um, I honestly mostly watch MMA. I'll tell you this: my wife passed away two months ago, unfortunately, oh, no. from cancer, which is uh, a very uh, devastating thing. And uh, what I watched when I was with her would be. She would watch MMA with me. She trained and earned one belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then said, all right, that's enough of that craziness. But she actually legit earned it and was really good. And so she understood the ground, and we'd watch MMA together. I would watch boxing, excuse me, when I'm not watching MMA. And then I would watch, like, old comedies with her. We loved watching old comedies. And then sometimes she would put on a movie here and there. I'm not a big movie guy. I really – I don't know who – half of the Gen Z or younger millennial stars are, I really wouldn't recognize them if I saw them, you know, cause I'm just not interested. And I kind of noticed the quality in film and, and TV just going from up here in the 1980s to boom, 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 boom down there. And I think that's why there's so much animation nowadays because literally they're like the only people that, that are in the business mostly are connected and it's a lot of people that are really, really pleasant on the eye because most of them are models, the men and the women and mm. the acting ability just legit sucks in my opinion. So I, I, I watch, uh, I watch older movies and, and older TV shows sometimes. And, but other than that, I, you know, I'm from Michigan, so I'm still a big fan of, uh, of Michigan teams and Detroit teams. 
I like football best out of the big four. And then I'd say basketball, hockey, even baseball is my least favorite. And, um, and, um, once in a while I'll watch a soccer game. I played soccer for a few years, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm just my passion is combat sports, and I love comedy stuff that makes me laugh. And uh, you know, so that's pretty much what I watch. I'm really not I'm not watching too much else. And so you know what I doc I scratch that documentaries. I kind of like documentaries uh, and, and specific ones usually that have to do sports. And sometimes you know, my wife would like to watch a crime documentary, which we were both very very much against. As who isn't? I guess we we're very much uh, uh, believed to be hard on crime and against uh, violent criminals, uh, but the programs were interesting. Sometimes we'd both get pretty pissed off at the terrible things that some of these criminals are doing, but kind of interesting, like forensic files type of shows and, and like that, where there were these twists, you know? So that's, I guess that's the long and the long answer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I want to quickly go back to the boxing uh, side of things. What did you make of the whole, uh, what was the latest one Nganu and Fury? Yes. And of course it was McGregor and uh and Floyd Mayweather years ago. You mean that yeah, yeah. Mayweather was kind of the one that kind of started everything. But what did you think of that when they announced all that stuff? Like is this a bit of a spectacle or did you believe in it or well so McGregor Mayweather it's going back about five years, I think, right about now, about five years, four and a half, five, yeah. And uh that I thought was very interesting. I I I I thought that McGregor didn't have much of a chance just because of the fact that his boxing and his timing was amazing for MMA, but it was against MMA fighters. And back then we didn't even have as many good strikers in, in MMA as we have now. Uh, the distance is also different in MMA because you're concerned about the takedown and other things. And he was a, a, a very, very exciting kind of cutting edge fight fighter, a striker in MMA with his movement. But I kind of realized it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to a hundred percent translate to, to, to boxing, uh, especially against the best in the world at the time. I'm not giving Floyd that as any sort of best ever, but almost best ever you could argue. He, he was he's one of them you know but yeah. definitely for the last for the last decade up there and perhaps the best you know probably in the last uh, in the last decade so I didn't think McGregor was do as well as he did but there's also some question that Floyd may have been carrying him because Floyd was super defensive for those early rounds but I will say this McGregor is a little bit of a bigger man than Floyd he had the reach on him he was naturally naturally heavier and he was 10 years younger or even even 12 years younger if i recall and uh so it, it's hard to say as far as what floyd was doing as far as really trying his best uh there's some talk that it ended in the ninth round and it did because floyd had had millions of dollars bet through relatives and friends that it would end in the ninth round mm -hmm. i hope that's not the case because that'd be pretty messed up you know uh as well as possibly illegal although i think in boxing you can bet on yourself you just can't bet against yourself mma now you're not allowed or at least in the ufc you're not allowed to make any wager on or against yourself if you're an active fighter so i don't know but i do think that that the way it looked mcgregor was throwing he was doing a lot of throwing he landed a bit he never had Floyd in trouble, but he was touching him a lot more than we thought. And sure. it was an exciting fight, right? And I think it, it got some more respect for MMA. And I think that five years later, 
this Nganu fight really kind of picked up where that left off because there was no question that Floyd stopped McGregor and McGregor never had him hurt, although he touched him, but it's a little bit debatable whether that was at Floyd's uh, uh, at Floyd's uh, discretion or, you know, or not, whether McGregor was really, really doing that well. In this situation, there's no question, and many people, including myself, felt, and I'll put it out here, felt that uh, Nganu won that fight. Yes, right. it was close. It was a very close fight. I've taken polls and I have had several hundred people respond. And out of a, out of a, a 75-25 uh, following that, that I have with 75% being MMA and boxing fans and 25 pretty much being exclusively boxing fans, about 75% of them did feel Nganu won. Uh, however, I'm looking at people that have exclusively boxing uh, uh, fans and, and it's more than 50% of them that feel that Fury won. But it was really close. And But either way, I think that Francis really got some more respect for the MMA community. I really think he really finished where McGregor started. And now boxing fans really can no longer assume that their best is going to beat our MMA world best even in the sport of boxing. And I think that shocked a lot of people, especially the odds were like 10 to one in that fight. And Fury never had Nganu in trouble once. No. And the one knockdown was from Nganu. So uh, it, it so almost I seems like Nganu could just go into the ring with Joshua or it could it like does, with Joshua, like, with Usyk, with Wilder, any of those guys. You know, uh, and and I will say this. Some people are saying that it was a shorter notice set up. They talked about it. It was on, then it was off, then it was back on. Some people said uh, Fury looked even more fleshy than he usually looked, and he didn't train at all, this, that, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. If Fury was that much better than Nganu, as most people thought, that stuff wouldn't have mattered dramatically. I'm not saying it doesn't matter or didn't. But if Fury was a, a was a, a a hundred times better than Ngannou in a boxing ring, like most boxing fans were saying, it wouldn't have turned out that way, uh, whether he trained or not. So to me, if if Fury wants to come back and say, "All right, you know what? I didn't take it seriously. Now I'm going to take it darn seriously. We're going to schedule this for three or four months out." And I'm going to come back and show off uh, Ngannou what a real boxer looks like. Then let's see. But to me, like I said, if Fury, if Ngannou was that inferior in a boxing ring, then Fury didn't really need to be that focused and could have smoked him, and he didn't. So I think that, uh, you know, now it doesn't mean that we're going to keep on producing MMA fighters that can compete against the very best in boxing. This is kind of a specific, a particular in instance with an amazingly athletic individual like Francis Ngannou. One of the things I said going into that fight was that Francis has a really good chin. People are forgetting about that. There haven't been instances of people rocking Francis Ngannou. He's really gotten beaten by wrestling mm -hmm. in MMA. 
And one of the things I said is that he will be in there against a man who will probably be 25 pounds heavier than him. I forget what their exact weights were, but it's maybe 25, 30-pound difference. But it'll be a man who's five, four inches taller or three inches. They had it officially listed as five. looked more like three-inch difference to me. But he'd be in there with a man with a little bit of a longer reach, a much better boxing pedigree, and like 30 extra pounds. And I said going into that fight, if Francis shows he can take the punches, then... Tyson Fury better be careful. And he showed that right away. The punches were like, Francis literally was like, come on, you know? And I think when Tyson Fury saw that, he was like, oh crap, this is a really fit, (laughs) big, strong, rugged MMA guy in here. And maybe I'm just a little bit, uh, a little bit of trouble here. And, uh, but he did the MMA community proud. I love that fight. And, and I think, yeah, I think he's, uh, you know, uh, people are saying though that someone that's that utilizes speed and aggressiveness more like an Alexander Alexander Usyk might be a, a tougher ask for Francis, and he might be. But Francis is down. Francis is down, and and he is uh, amazing. And uh, you know, I uh, I think that he 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 definitely made the MMA community proud. He made a lot of us happy. We weren't so happy that he didn't pay off. Uh, at the uh, at the betting uh, window, but that wasn't his fault. And he even said he was expecting that the uh, they weren't, weren't going to give the decision to him, which shows his knowledge about how unfortunately uh, boxing and MMA judging can be. Because it shouldn't be that someone doesn't want to give you something, but uh, sometimes it seems like that's in the back of some of these judges' minds, which is dismaying uh, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to music. Colin, what did you uh, grow up listening to in the house? Where were your parents playing and, and and hit us with your first concert and all that? Well, uh, hit me with your best shot. No, that was my my late wife's, one of her favorites, Pat Benatar, going yeah. back to the early 80s. Um, you know, my mom had a beautiful living room set up with a beautiful stereo system, and they were kind of bigger back in those days. And, uh, you know, when I was very, very little, she had some great 70s uh, stuff, you know, uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, the Bee Gees, um, you know, like like that stuff. And uh, and uh, and then in the early 80s, really, you know, and then also I liked a lot of 60s stuff, too that, you know, that was uh, before, you know, my time. But I liked uh, Jimi Hendrix. And I liked, uh, you know, Eric Clapton and uh, Beatles stuff was great. Even some old Elvis stuff. And uh, I liked, uh, I liked, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of 60s rock as well. Uh, some eclectic taste, whack, some groups of people don't remember too well. I like a group called Jethro Tull from the 70s yeah. from England. Um and uh the birds uh eric burden and uh the animals and eric burden and war i liked a lot uh um moody blues for more mellow stuff um uh what was that group that was like a folk music group with uh the women i kept peter paul and mary again really old stuff uh some stuff from janice joplin was great Joni mitchell uh, and then 80s stuff, um, uh, there was so much good stuff out there, although I don't know why I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Stevie Winwood, I liked his music. Um, 
Marvin Gaye also in the seventies. I liked, mm-hmm. uh, in the nineties, I, I, there wasn't too much, but I liked, uh, Pearl jam and I liked, uh, stone temple pilots, which kind of had a similar sound to them. Um, and there's, I know there's some of forgetting a uh, red hot chili peppers. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, and yeah. what was your first concert that you went to? How old were you? I'm not going to say my age because I'm so old. I hate to date myself, but I went as a child with uh, with no supervision because you were allowed to back then. But I went to as a as a young young youngster. I went to uh, Kiss and Cheap Trick in the Pontiac Silverdome. Okay, wow, that's yeah. a great first concert. Yeah, we had been given like back then, like three dollars could get you and your buddy enough food for the whole concert, and we were horsing around in the car and the money fell out of our pocket and so we were there alone for like the next four hours and and all we we had no money so we were eating the condiments (laughs) onions whatever pepper put a little ketchup on the onions and uh (laughs) but yeah that was uh that was my first uh that was my first concert i went to a kiss after that and uh i went to uh a, uh, you know, I liked also, I liked uh, uh, Paul Simon. Yeah. And then years before Simon and Garfunkel were great, I went to a, a Paul Simon uh, with uh, Bob Dylan concert, which is interesting. I had a good buddy that was uh, big into the Grateful Dead, and I would go to a few of the concerts after Jerry Garcia died, uh, which were pretty darn interesting. Very mellow, peaceful vibe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I probably didn't go to a ton of concerts overall in my life. Uh, although I really always enjoyed uh, that type of music, that, that classic stuff. There was so much great stuff uh, back in those days. Yeah. Uh, this is a weird question, but I, I'm curious just for, for the for the person you are and the and the things that you've done, like who's the most famous person that you've met? That's a very good question. That's a very, very good question. Wow. Um You know, I've met some random movie stars that weren't weren't really the biggest. I don't really want to throw their names out there because they kind of became not really my favorites from just making bad life choices. Oh. You know, so I met some people who kind of became screw ups a little bit, but they kind of had some acclaim. As far as anyone I'd want to throw out, uh, I mean, I, I'm mostly mostly uh, the most famous people i've met were 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 the bigger fighters like i interviewed at an event conor mcgregor and cowboy cerrone um i you know and i did an interview i didn't meet this guy in person but i interviewed the action movie star uh frank grillo which was really cool he's done a lot of stuff the kingdom series and you know fight world you know and uh you know um and uh other than that, if there were some people, I don't think they stuck with me uh, that much. I think I, I, you know what? I used to go to boxing a lot and sit right behind the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, but uh, but I did that. Those guys, hey? Yeah, yeah, they they yeah. they really were. At first, I thought they weren't. I thought that because it was in L.A., someone probably just said, "Hey, dudes, you got nothing to do. You want to hear some boxing tickets?" But they showed up consistently. Uh, to boxing and, and I think they've even showed up to a few UFCs mm-hmm. um and uh yeah I could swear I ran into some people some 
more, but it's interesting just I think the older we get, the more we push stuff out of our head that really wasn't that important. And so yeah, no sure. one really yeah, no one really stood out. Uh, but I think I've met a few people, you know, and like I said early on, some people that were famous that turned out to be somewhat infamous. So I don't wanna you know, yeah. want to throw them out there. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Colin, I'll ask you one last question. It could be the toughest or it could be the easiest. What is your career highlight? Like, just can you pick one thing from your career? Uh, as far as in MMA podcasting, which is my passion, which is what we're talking about. Uh, I I would really have to say going to that press conference where I was on camera for for uh, on and off camera for about three minutes, where I was interviewing uh, Conor McGregor and Cowboy Cerrone before their fight they actually put about 10 or 15 seconds of that on the netflix documentary mcgregor forever and funny enough when they went to commercial they went with me on the screen to commercial one of those times wearing my sports jacket and holding the ufc microphone uh as i was asking the questions to connor and cowboy and that was a, a really good feeling. I had a friend of mine there as my videographer, which is why I got the, the I have like extra footage of that. Mm. Uh, but I had only been covering things in media for maybe three or four years at that point. And or I think like three. And I uh, it was before the pandemic. So we were all packed in there like sardines about 20 feet away from the, the stage that Connor and Cowboy were on. And, uh, I, you know, I know I had asked some good questions in previous press conferences and I really hadn't thought about what I was going to ask. But if you look at the post-fight press conference, Dana looked right at me and said, okay, how about you? You, you got a, you got a question there. And he was looking and pointing right at me. Cause I had come through and I think a couple of previous events with really good questions at the post-fight presser. And this was like a pre-fight presser, but I looked at him like, crap, what am I going to say? No. And I thought of it, I was between a couple different questions. And I said, yeah, thank you, Dana. And I said, for Connor, you know, how do you think this fight would have gone? Uh, something like uh, if it was when you guys first had words a few years back. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and you know, and then he said something like, uh, and I think I even had more detail. And then he said, well, I think the press conference would have been different for sure. And then he laughed and he said, uh, but I think the fight would have probably gone on the same. And then I had several more questions and it was really important to me to meet, to do really well on a big stage. There was so much media there. There was a ton. It was the most media I've ever seen at a UFC event. It was like triple the amount of media that's usually at UFC events. And I just was like, man, I just want to kill this. Cause I want to let people know that I know my stuff. And that I'm going to come out, come through with good questions that are interesting, that make Connor and Cowboy think, and that make the press conference even more interesting. And I felt really good for having come through and having that footage, and then having it be on uh, the Netflix uh, uh, Connor McGregor Forever documentary. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Hey, that's something for life, man. That's something yeah. for life, buddy. It was a great. Um, it was a great Colin, where's where's the best place for people to kind of hang out and check you out socially online like are, are you more active on twitter or instagram or is there a website to go to or 
Yeah, happy to tell you right now our MMA Power Hour website is down. We were never so much a news source, although we started to kind of get into that about a year and a half ago. And that was my my MMA Power Hour producer, Adam Rorta. That was his thing, and I'm not the tech guy at all. And uh, and then he had some other things come up he had to deal with. So that's been down for a while. We're kind of still thinking about what we're going to do there. But absolutely, I'm active on social media. And let's go from least to most. Instagram, I'm hardly doing anything. I don't know why. It's simple. It's just pictures. So I can't say I don't know how to do it. But I've never really got into the flow. Although I think when I put something up on Facebook, it's going to Instagram. And Facebook, I know well. We kind of mistakenly embraced Facebook a lot uh, in the first several years of our show. And, uh, and, uh, and it turns out that only now is starting to be able to pay some dividends, but a lot of my contents there, I'll still post stuff on Facebook. Uh, Twitter is really where I'm at, which is X and I do uh, Twitter spaces at least once, sometimes twice a week. Sometimes I'll even do a two hour space. I'll put my video interviews up there as well. Just starting to get into my YouTube. You'll see a lot more of my content on the Hannibal TV. That's still where I put my MMA from London to LA. And we do a show nearly every single week. And, um, and, uh, and so if you want to look there, I'd love to have your support there. Colin Crandall MMA. And I'm calling at Colin Crandall 33 on Twitter as the handle, which is uh, at Colin Crandall MMA. And yeah, just hit me up. I appreciate uh, everyone. And I, I, you know, I try to get back to, I mean, I'm not saying I have hundred, I don't, you know, I've got 5,000 people there and I think the other one's about the same. So I'm not saying it would take me all day to respond to people, but sometimes if I get a ton of, ton of questions, it might take a day or two, but I take it really seriously. And a lot of times if I'm around and I can shoot you back a response, if anyone's got a question, anyone wants to hit me up, I really do respect uh, people that want to talk to me and, and other podcasters and experts uh, like yourself. Right on. Yeah, like I said, you know, I I really do. Uh, I like what you do on Twitter, and uh, I just wanted to get you on the on the program here and kind of chew your ear off a little bit, talk MMA, talk some fights, and talk your your life and and everything else. So thanks again for doing this tonight, Colin, and uh, we'll tag you when we're chucking this stuff around, and I guess we'll see you online. Fantastic, Todd. Thank you, man. It was a pleasure. You do great work, and I appreciate you and respect you a lot. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Find us at Toddcast Podcast. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of the Go Kid Go Network. Do your kids love wacky worlds, superheroes, and inventing? Of course they do. That's why our shows Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow are set in Pflugerville, the nonstop fun and adventure universe where imagination, creativity, STEM, and positive role models abound. Join the Pflugerville fun by searching for Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.